0: In some instances, they would go into a particular town and it would be a white dance on Friday night and the Black dance Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's one story in the book where uh, the Black dance had uh, been one night and the next night the when the white patrons came, they broke all of the glasses in the bar because they didn't want to drink out of the same glasses that black people had drunk out of.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Jimmy. Welcome back to another episode of the Jimmy Tingle Show. We have a very special guest this week. Yes, we do. I know I say that every week, but it's true. All of our guests are very special. This young lady, Carmen Fields, has been a fixture in the greater Boston journalism community for over 30 years. Her experience includes both print and broadcast journalism, Journalism education in both corporate and nonprofit media relations. Her 1993 documentary, Going Back to Teetown, recently re aired on PBS. The show is about the Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the historic 1921 race massacre, which destroyed Black Wall Street. Her new book is Going Back to T-Town, about her father Ernie Fields' journey as a jazz man in the 1920s across the entire country, including the Deep South, and it is just being released and is coming up to a bookstore near you. We'll get to that in the show notes and during our conversation. Please welcome to the show my buddy, the one and only
0: Carmen Fields. Hello, Carmen. How are you? Hey there, Jimmy. I am great, and I'm so honored to be in your company for this special conversation. Well,
1: cool, thanks so much for joining us, Carmen. So tell us first off, tell us about how did you get involved with creating a documentary about the Tulsa race riots of the 1920s and uh, and why is it being re-aired now? It came out in 1993 originally, but it's be, it was just re-aired on public television.
0: Uh, it was a part of the series called uh, The American Experience, uh, which is a very popular uh, PBS series. When it was initially commissioned, uh, the executive producer wanted a look at the interior of segregation, but she didn't want to go to the Deep South or Atlanta or the place in Mississippi, the places you always think of when you think of uh, segregation or rigid segregation. And um, Tulsa, Oklahoma became the typical place to look at. Well, uh, I was assigned and given a a fabulous crew that included Sam Pollard, who's a very uh, 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 well-respected documentarian and his partner, Joyce Vaughn, and we started researching. Well, the interior segregation is one thing, but in Tulsa, you couldn't look at it without taking into account that in 1921, the Black side of town was literally destroyed by uh, racist remo- marauders uh, across that. And little did we know that very little had been done to tell of that time and that tragedy. So we, uh, we put the program together. It aired in 1993. And uh, in 2021, which marked the 100th anniversary of the massacre, PBS, uh, in their wisdom, decided to re-air the documentary because across the nation, there was all of this interest in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, CBS and ABC and New York Times Mm -hmm. and Wall Street Journal. Uh, What happened in Tulsa 1921? Well, I was uh, delighted to know that they were re-airing it this year uh because May 31st is when the massacre occurred and so all during the week of May 31st uh they saw fit to air it on different platforms again and I'm I'm deeply deeply honored and it uh the race massacre was told in the words of people who had actually experienced it and also the interior of segregation was expressed by those who had lived it after the massacre and when Tulsa, the black side of town, Greenwood District, was rebuilt. So it was an all-encompassing look at how we lived, the way we were. Mm -hmm. So your
1: relationship
0: with Tulsa is that you grew up there, is that correct? That is correct. That's where I was born and raised, uh, and was a product of the segregation of the day. I graduated of Ralph J. Bunch Elementary School, Marion Anderson Junior High School, and Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay, and all those
1: schools were segregated at the time.
0: That's correct. That and that is this was in the sixties, the fifties. That's how you how you knew. Yes, that's the the fifties and sixties.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. and so. It's 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 quite a statement that you made a film in the early nineteen nineties that has the staying power to be released thirty years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly wasn't on everybody's radar until mm-hmm. recently, correct? Uh,
0: until very recently, and I'd like to say, in part, thanks to the nineteen ninety three film, uh, the city fathers began reexamining what had happened. Uh, There had been gossip that there were mass graves uh, of uh, black bodies in a cemetery and the mayor uh, decided to have a team of archaeologists search the the, uh, burial ground and they have found some remains. And as we speak, uh, DNA uh, processing is, is underway. Uh, There has been a movement. There are still about three or four survivors who are in their 100s. One is 100, and I just celebrated her 109th birthday. Another gentleman is uh, 107. And there's a movement for some reparations for them as survivors and also for the community as a whole. What what form that will take is still under discussion. Are we talking about scholarships? Are we talking about home mm-hmm. loans or, or how, uh, because the, the word reparations is a very loaded uh, word uh, nowadays. Right. Uh, but that documentary started the ball to ro- rolling on wanting to know more, learn more and, uh, and teach.
1: That's really a fascinating story, Carmen. Tell me, growing up in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma as a kid or as a teenager, did you hear anything about this uh, this riot, this massacre in 1921? Was that something that was of folklore? or did you know anybody there? It,
0: it was It was almost like a uh, a myth. Uh, if it was mentioned, it was whispered very surreptitiously. Uh, It was not something that was out in the open, and I'm not sure why that was, whether there was fear of repercussions, but no, it was not in our textbooks that we had uh, at the time, and very little, very seldom, in fact, it was mentioned so little, you know, it wasn't a part of my consciousness until we began to work on the documentary, and thankfully, my parents, who, who are had been in Oklahoma for a long time, they weren't a part of the 1921 events, but when we wanted to talk to people that could help us understand what happened, uh, went to my mother and father's friends. Uh, uh, our church members uh, we pulled together photographs uh, we, there was a big outreach to the black community at large to help us tell the story and it was anchored in <clears throat> in large part by John hope Franklin the distinguished historian who grew up in Tulsa and whose father was a lawyer and had encouraged and guided uh, the victims to rebuild uh, uh, Tulsa, Black Tulsa, the Greenwood District. And he was able to give a voice and a context uh, that was very valuable to the documentary.
1: So it really helped you in your perspective and your ability to get people on camera talking about this, having grown up there mm-hmm. with the personal connection through your parents. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just briefly for the audience, Black Wall Street. Tell us what Black Wall Street was, because that term kept coming up. Uh, What was Black
0: Wall Street? Well, it was uh, believed that the Tulsa uh, Black Wall Street was one of the, if not the most prosperous, Black uh, business district in the country. There were grocery stores. There were dry cleaners. There were chili parlors. There were hotels. Uh, the whole shooting match, Uh, a very thriving community that because of segregation, we didn't have to go outside for any services. Only thing we had to go outside of our community for was to work. And Tulsa was an oil boom town. So the service industry uh, was very thriving. And many people came to Tulsa to get jobs working as housekeepers and porters and uh, all of that that supported uh, a booming uh, oil industry at the time. So let's talk now about your
1: dad, because you have a new book on out called Going Back to T-Town. And this is about your father, Ernie Fields, experience mm-hmm. as a jazz musician in his travels throughout the entire United States, including the Deep South during the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that uh, comment.
0: Well, let me clarify one thing about the documentary and the title of the book. The documentary was titled Going Back to T-Town, and that's G-O-I-N apostrophe. And that comes from the lyric of my father's very first recording, T-Town Blues, which was recorded in New York City in 1939. Uh, And that was part of the track, the musical track of the documentary featured his music. Okay. Okay, Fast forward, you know, 25 years (laughs) or more. And um, I liked that title for a different reason, because although his travels took him all over the country, and I mean, I documented Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, up into Canada, uh, Mississippi, Uh, Tennessee, he always returned to T-Town or Tulsa, Oklahoma, where uh, he was married to my mother for 67 years before he passed, uh, uh, educated his family, his children. And uh, so that represents the full circle of him going back to T-Town always. Uh, And I just uh, was fascinated by the stories he used to tell Mm -hmm. And, um, took an opportunity, particularly during the pandemic. I had started on the book long before the pandemic and when my father was still alive, getting him to retell the stories, uh, taught him how to use a tape recorder so that when I wasn't visiting, he could, if he had memories that came, he could Mm -hmm. record them down and I could transcribe them, uh, later, but, uh, the more research I did, the impact that he had, and his name wasn't a household word, but he was a contemporary of the Cab Calloways and the Duke Ellingtons and Count Basies, who were his friends and colleagues. Mm -hmm. But I wanted his story to stand on its own as a part of jazz history.
1: Wow. And so did he stop playing as a A young kid there in Tulsa and just got into it. I mean, he found his calling with jazz music.
0: Well, believe it or not, he was trained at Tuskegee University, which was the uh, uh, Tuskegee Institute. It was called at that time, which was the bastion of trade training for the black community. That was uh, Booker T. Washington's uh, uh, mainstay. So he had gone to Tuskegee and trained as an electrician, came back uh, uh, to Tulsa. He was raised in a different community, an all-Black community called Taft, Oklahoma. But when he finished Tuskegee, he settled in Tulsa because he had a job on Greenwood Avenue with an electric company. And he was out on a trouble call and heard some young men rehearsing, and he thought that sounded good. He had not been trained as a musician, although he'd been a part of the band while he was at Tuskegee. And uh, he started gigging with these young men and long story short, since he was a little older and seemed to have a little more training, they asked him to be their leader. And since he was the leader, he named the orchestra after himself. And that's (laughs) how the Ernie Fields Orchestra was born. (laughs) <laughs> very smart
1: businessman.
0: <laughs> the indeed. Ernie Fields Orchestra. I love that. Yes, indeed. But uh, as you can imagine, traveling with six hundred, sixteen or 17 African-American musicians around the country in a mm-hmm. bus could be very dangerous and yep. precarious at best because there were all these unspoken and spoken rules and regulations, and you never were quite sure when you were going to make a misstep. But uh, thankfully, by the grace of God, he maneuvered quite handily. Uh, And his organization, I learned in my research, um, was a real important training ground for uh, musicians. Um, I have in the back of the book what I call a roll call. Uh, some 100 or more musicians who had come through his organization. Some went into obscurity. Others gained fame uh, in their own right. Some uh, started their own musical organizations. But I wanted to give homage to the importance of the so-called territory bands and what they represented for generations of musicians. Those who are students of jazz may recognize the name of Freddie Green, who is the guitarist and a longtime Count Basie mainstay. He had been in the Ernie Fields Orchestra. Leroy Cooper, a baritone saxophone player, uh, was a mainstay with the Ray Charles Orchestra, but he had been in the Ernie Fields Organization. Many who were there for years, decades, and some for as short as uh, one day, uh, the great bassist Cecil McBeat tells the story of uh, being invited to fill in uh, one day, and he was just out of high school in Tulsa, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he guesses he couldn't cut the mustard because he didn't get invited back to sit in anymore. But those are the, the characters, known and unknown, who cycle through the Ernie Fields organization.
1: And obviously, just going to Tuskegee, Uh, Institute and being formally trained and educated, Mm -hmm. I I assume, gave him a huge advantage and an inside track on organizational skills and how to put together an orchestra and how to create more than just himself as a musician. Those those are a lot of uh, important skills to have. And it sounds like that he was able to have influence way beyond his own musical
0: input. Without a question, and but a lot of it was on-the-job training, too, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. on uh, uh, how to uh, booking and strategies for con- negotiating contracts. Right. He was greatly influenced by a white country and Western great by the name of Bob Wills, who uh, gave him some tips on booking strategies uh, mm-hmm. web- the, to ask for a guarantee and the percentage of the gate as yep. opposed to just a guarantee or just a percentage of the gate. So he learned he was like a sponge and yep. learned and applied that to keep his organization working.
1: Did they perform for white audiences and black audiences? It was yes. primarily black yes. audiences, the how white, did that work?
0: White and, white and black audiences. And in some instances, they'd go into a particular town and it would be a white dance on Friday night and the black dance Saturday night.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and there's one story in the book where uh, the black dance had uh, been one night and the next night the when the white patrons came, they broke all of the glasses in the bar mm-hmm. because they didn't wanna drink out of the same glasses that black people had drunk out of.
1: Oh man. I bet there's some heartbreaking stories in the book, or are there some heartbreaking there stories are. like there, that? In, there are, in the book?
0: and there's uh, there's uh, great stories of overcoming uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I stress my father was not a bitter man. He uh, did not begrudge anyone. He considered himself blessed by his experiences and that he was alive to tell the story. Uh, yeah. But yes, uh, when you think of it in today's terms, what they had to put up with, not knowing whether they could get something to eat, whether they could use a restroom facilities. Um, it it gives you pause for thought.
1: The name of the book again, Carmen, is going back to T Town. Mm-hmm. You got a you got one with you? I got one. You want to hold it me. up? Oh, there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> going
1: back to T Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. Good looking guy there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm a chip off of a real good block.
1: Yeah, you are. When you were growing up, did you, like my dad's out there, you know, making music all over the country? I mean, was that pretty cool?
0: Youth is wasted on the young. I was more... (laughs) uh, than cool, I was more embarrassed that, uh, oh, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, why can't he come home with a briefcase or yeah, uh, right. at five o'clock uh, like other people's dad?
1: Right, <laughs> right. But now, of course, you have immense respect and admiration for what he did. Without a question. And that's how most of us are with our parents, too, no matter <laughs> what they do, you know. Later in life, we really tend to appreciate them. So where can people get this book? Is the book out now? The book
0: is out now. It's available for orders at OUPress.com, Amazon, or Barnes and & Noble. And I'm headed back to T-Town uh, okay. for uh, Juneteenth celebrations and some book signings uh, the, in mid-June.
1: Well, that's fabulous. Well, you can get the book, as you heard, folks. You, uh, it's all in the show notes. There are links to where you can get the book. You can order it online. And you can get the documentary if you want to order the documentary from PBS. And it was the first documentary about the Tulsa uh, massacre. Mm-hmm. And it really brought to light a, a part of our history that nobody really knew about or discussed publicly until Commons documentary. So it's a really great contribution you made to the country, to American history, Commons. So thank you for that. And what a great tribute to your dad to write a book about his trials and tribulations and his victories and all the success that he had and the, the way he was able to help other musicians is really fantastic. So folks, you can get the book. It's all in the show notes.
0: But if they want to know more about Ernie Fields, erniefields.org uh, is a website that was established by one of my dad's fans about okay. uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, Ernie... F- the Ernie Fields Legacy Book One is the um, Instagram uh, account where you can see all of the information oh, for the last year or so uh, leading mm-hmm. up to the book release. Uh, cool. So uh, uh, join us on, on, at Instagram, Ernie Fields Legacy Book One.
1: So, Carmen, you're going to be at the Harvard Bookstore on August 1st. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge. Uh, And I'm excited that my former co-anchor, Christopher Lydon, is going to be the moderator leading the conversation about my dad and his uh, ups and downs in the jazz industry. Wow. That is going to be a great interview, folks. If you can see Carmen and Christopher
1: Lydon live at the Harvard Bookstore on August 1st, I highly recommend it. You will not be disappointed. Carmen has a fantastic story, obviously, about her dad and, and his his experience as a jazz musician back in the 1920s. And Christopher Lydon is a jazz connoisseur. He understands everybody and everything about American jazz. He's a fabulous interviewer, much better than me. <laughs> and you will thoroughly enjoy that evening. August 1st, Harvard Bookstore. Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Carmen, it's been a pleasure to have you today. I hope to see you on August 1st. If I'm in town, I'd love to stop by and see you and Christopher in action. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on the film and congratulations, of course, on the book. It's been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you again. It's great to catch up too. Carmen thank and you. I go way back. She's been to many of my shows. I've been on her shows when she was a television producer and host here in Boston. So it's great to catch up and great to have you on the Jimmy Tingle Show. Amen. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Please go to the show notes where you can get the PBS special. You can get Order Carmen's book, Going Back to T Town with Ernie Fields and his jazz story. And uh, it's all about America, ladies and gentlemen. Keep the faith common. Great to see you.